Welcome, everyone. My name is Mike Verbsky, and you are listening to Limitless. This podcast is brought to you by the Academy of Amputation and Limb Difference Physical Therapy. Good morning, everybody out there who has been following me on Limitless. Again, my name is Mike Bergsky. I'm coming to you from the Academy for Amputation and Limb Difference Physical Therapy. It's a beautiful Sunday morning here in New York, and we are joined today by Dr. Nikhil Agrawal. He is a hand and nerve surgeon, and this morning we're going to be talking a lot about neuropathic pain, phantom pain, sensations, and some of the treatments that are out there and available to you, whether you're someone going through limb loss or if you're a clinician who's trying to kind of figure out how to treat this person. So, Dr. Agrawal, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. Doing great. Like you said, it's a beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, thanks for having me on. I've been listening to your podcast. It's, it's been great. Very interesting. A lot of good uh, guests on. So I'm glad to join the fray. Uh, and we are absolutely happy to have you. Dr. Agrawal, uh, let's start off with how did you come to find this as an area that you wanted to get involved in, in terms of helping our patients? Yeah, it's a great question. It's kind of a uh, long story, but I did my plastic and reconstructive training in Houston, Texas, and began to encounter patients who were experiencing either limb loss or going through a limb salvage pathway at a hospital called MD Anderson, it's a big cancer hospital on a lot of extremity sarcomas and things of the sort and patients that had to go amputations for cancer reasons um, and started to get to know the population a little bit there and came to enjoy it. And, you know, the reconstructive apps aspect of it uh, was very interesting to me. And that's the, the lens through which I looked at the population there. And so that started it off. And then I also spent a lot of time at the VA in Houston, which is the biggest VA in the country, beautifully well-run, patients are awesome enjoyed my time there. And of course, as you know, a lot of our limb loss population in the country is from our great veterans. So getting to know those patients as well and their resilience that they've had and how they've kind of come and struggled through the different aspects of it and just with their, you know, with their condition and working past that to a uh, meaningful life and everything really, I enjoyed that aspect of it. And so that's where I started to get involved with uh, limb loss patients. I got interested enough that I sought out a fellowship, additional training at a place where they were doing a lot of something called TMR and were dealing a lot of neuropathic pain as reconstructive surgeons at uh, Harvard Medical School's Massachusetts General Hospital. I with a few surgeons up there who were really getting into phantom limb pain, residual limb pain, and this new technique that we'll talk about later on in the podcast. Um, and so that's kind of my journey and how I came to get to know this population. Definitely a wide range of facilities and experiences for you to build this knowledge base on. That's great. Yeah, it's great. It's been, you know, I've been very lucky and I've enjoyed it every step of the way. Um, getting to know patients, you know, from the cancer side at MD Anderson and the trauma side and the chronic conditions at the Veterans Hospital. And then at Massachusetts General Hospital, it's big, big trauma hospitals. So a lot of yeah. trauma, they also do a lot of cancer care. So you get to see it from a lot of different perspectives doing you know, amputations immediately up front, uh, also trying to save limbs, doing limb salvage, and then also seeing the chronic side of things where people have chronic pain and even just opening prosthetics. And it's great. You know, one of the interesting things that they have at, at Harvard at Massachusetts General Hospital that we should, we should think about here in Long Island is they have a 
great multidisciplinary clinic. So the patients will show up in the clinic and right there in the office, there's a prosthetist, there's a pain medicine doc, there's an orthopedic surgeon, a plastic surgeon. Um, and they all, you meet all as a patient, you see everybody at the same time, you know, psychiatrist, right. everybody, the social worker, the whole thing. Um, and that way, whatever issues you're having or things are going great, you know, people can kind of talk to you about what the next steps are and you get it all at once. That's in our future, Mike. Yeah. Well, and, and that's a great way to go about things is really that multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary approach. That's what we use at my facility. We've got PT, OT, psychiatry, psychology, pain management. I've got about a half dozen prosthetists that I work with on a regular basis. So we keep that close relationship with therapy and pain management and the patient, their families. You get better results. It's just... You get better outcomes if you've got that team approach towards treating the patient. Definitely. And I think communication with all the different specialties and you know communication from the patient to all these specialties all at the same time is, is huge. And when everybody's communicating well, you can really figure out the problem efficiently and get people, get people on with their lives instead of going to one appointment, driving across the island to another appointment or driving across New York City to another appointment and um, trying to get on the telephone with everybody. So when it happens all at the same time, it's, it's the best way to do it. Absolutely. I agree with you. What are the differences from your perspective as far as what patients are going to notice with their residual rim pain versus their, what we refer to as phantom sensations or phantom pain? Yeah, it's great. Great question. So phantom limb pain is what, when we're talking about that, we're referring to pain in the parts of the body that are no longer there. So it's, it's a phantom pain, very much a neurogenic phenomenon from, um, amputated from nerves that have been cut. Uh, and those nerves are constantly trying to regrow. And so they form something called an aroma. They're almost like a, a live wire. And so that produces, you know, two things, neuropathic pain and phantom limb pain. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about phantom limb pain. Residual limb pain is a conglomerate of a lot of different things. It could be pain at the stump from the bone being prominent or from something called heterotopic ossification, which will cause you to have that similar kind of burn or that similar kind of bone pain. You can have issues where the padding over the bone is inadequate and so you need a little more soft tissue coverage there. A lot of times that happens because over time, the residual limb will change. Things are usually swollen after surgery and they calm down. And as people gain and lose weight and go on with their lives, your residual limb will change. And so if it changes in a certain way, you can have residual limb pain there. If your prosthetic hasn't been fitted and corrected over time as that changes, it will also cause you to have residual limb pain at that area. Probably a couple I'm missing, but that's, they're different things. As far as your second question, what is the patient experience? When a patient is having neuropathic pain, they will a lot of times have a shocking pain or they'll have one particular spot where you tap it and they feel a shock. Residual pain is a little more dull and it can be less well-defined. So you'll have pain kind of around the stump or in certain times when you're wearing a prosthetic or ambulating in a certain way. What else have you seen with that, Mike? So I've seen all of that, of course, when we get our patients coming in, they're usually relatively new after their surgery. Some of them still have their stitches or staples in place. We have seen the range of patients where, like you said, there's that prominent bone, especially if it's a patient who's very thin in body type, 
So those bones are really very close to the surface in the first place. And they can definitely feel that, that rubbing, that pressure with their functional mobility is that as we start to really wake up all those muscles and a lot of times the nerves too, you know, you start moving around and those nerves get all sorts of fired up again. As far as that inadequate soft tissue and the muscle flap or skin closures, we see that unfortunately sometimes too, where the, the flap isn't adequate enough to really give them that extra padding on those bony ends of their surgery, then they have even more of a pain response. And that's just a tough one to overcome a lot of times. Sometimes, unfortunately, they end up uh, so paralyzed by the anticipation of or the actual pain that they're almost afraid to move. Yeah, it can be tough. And any, any kinds of these pains can cause people to ambulate less or to have less prosthetic use, which is a big deal. And, you know, that's, that's something we want to be able to diagnose and fix. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And then the other yeah. piece of that is, you know, when they're having all of that pain in the first place, or if they have any extra skin breakdown issues, and if they don't have that adequate skin closure, then it takes us longer to get them set and fitted into their socket. So it prolongs their recovery process. Yeah. It's a very good point. It's an important part of it. You know, it's only Little things just like recovering from surgery, just having your incision closed well can make make big difference. And of course, getting the swelling to calm down and, you know, there are techniques that you, of course, would do uh, to help reduce that swelling or to bring it down so that they can get to their limb, to their prosthetic fit as quick as possible. Right. And then, of course, there's the extra potential side effect that we've run into where, unfortunately, sometimes patients have to go back for revision of some sort. And it almost starts the clock all over again for us, even though they're ahead of the game in terms of therapy and in terms of getting stronger and getting the core muscles back in action. I mean, some of the techniques and, and tricks that we want them to learn, unfortunately, if you go back for more surgery, depending on if they had to take more of the patient's limb or if there were additional complications from the surgery, really does prolong them in terms of getting back to those activities of daily living back to their lifestyle. Right. Yeah. It, it almost sounds like it's a easy fix sometimes to go back to surgery and get it dealt with. And, and you're like, okay, if I just do the big thing and get it fixed, maybe I can go back and we'll, we won't have to think about it again, but it's not necessarily true. And if, you know, if you're able to solve problems without surgery, you it honestly usually works out better. I know it's not something surgeons should be saying all the time, but it's, it's probably <laughs> true. <laughs> um, if you can avoid surgery, it's probably good for you, you know, and in the, there's other techniques and tricks you guys have to, to shape the limb in a way without having to go back for surgery. That's, that's ideal. Absolutely. And, and we do use figure eight ACE wraps. If the patient is not ready yet for their shrinker, we will do some gentle sort of massage techniques, or even if we can get them in a position where their legs are elevated to help with some of that fluid drainage. The figure eight ACE wrap is always a, a tricky balancing act because it can't be too loose because then it doesn't do anything, but then it can't be too tight because then we couldn't run the risk of doing damage to that very sensitive tissue right around the surgical area. I have had patients where unfortunately they ended up with a uh, skin necrosis around that area if the ACE wrap was put on too tight. So then of course that gives you additional problems you have to deal with. But there are definitely treatment techniques and options out there to hopefully shape that limb properly and avoid surgery. 
Yeah, yeah. I've seen it's a it's a very frustrating thing when that happens because um, it is a delicate balancing act. Like we've seen it. I've only really I've seen that in uh, vascular surgery patients like diabetics and Mm-mm. people with peripheral heart disease more than I've seen it in uh, you know the younger healthier trauma. Of course, uh, yeah. Some of the cancer patients, but it is it is a problem, and it you know it's a lot of feedback. So you may not know what how, you know you have an idea of how tight is too tight, but the patients if they have poor sensation uh because of diabetes or something like that they can't necessarily provide the same amount of feedback right. to say this is too tight or not too tight so that that makes it challenging yeah and i think what the other problem sometimes is as clinicians we want to be in an appropriate level being aggressive to help treat the patient and a lot of times the patients are automatically jumping into well the therapist is doing it or the physician is doing it the nurse is doing it they must know what they're doing and they go with it and they, they accept a certain amount of pain or, or symptoms that they're like, okay, this must be good. And it's really not. I know as far as it, what I like to do with my ACE wraps, those figure eight ACE wraps is I like to try to get at least one or two fingers underneath that ACE wrap between the ACE wrap and the skin. And as long as I've got that sort of ability, then it's a, it's a good tightness. It's not going to be too tight at that point. Um, obviously if there's somebody out there who's got uh, much smaller or much larger fingers, then you may have to adapt that a little bit, but if I can get a couple fingers in there, then it's not too tight, but definitely what you're saying is hundred percent accurate in that, you know, you have somebody who's got impaired sensation or circulation, they may not notice if it's too tight. Yeah, I think that's a good rule of thumb that I used to for, you know, any splinting or post-surgical dressings. If you get two fingers underneath, it's usually safe. But it, it is important, like you said, it's a from the patient perspective and from the clinician perspective to keep in mind that it's a conversation. And not, to, you know, if you're a patient, you, you obviously want to trust whoever is taking care of you. But if you're feeling something that's a little uncomfortable, you can even just say something like, this is a little tight here, or this is a little uncomfortable. Is that normal? And right. most people will be okay with that, you know, I everyone should be okay with that. And if you're a clinician, also, when you're putting on a dressing to afterwards say, do you feel like this is too tight? Is there any point that it's not too tight? You know that the patient isn't going to lose trust in you for asking mm-hmm. questions. I think in general, patients will have more trust in you if you are asking them how they're feeling as you're doing it. I think that the even more of a rule of thumb with when we're treating our patients is, is that open communication, feedback, talking things through and making sure that everybody across the healthcare team, including the patient and their families, their caregivers, are all on board with that treatment plan. Yes, absolutely. And not being afraid to redo it. Sometimes, you know, they put a splint or wrap on, spend all this time doing it and it looks so pretty and then the patient thinks it's tight or it feels there's something a little off or maybe you get two fingers in it, but you're really struggling. Just do it over again. Feels like absolutely, a better yep. night. <laughs> I've it's been frustrating there. it's yep. annoying, but you got you to just do it. And one other point for everyone listening today, um, when you're doing those ACE wraps, if the ACE wrap that you have came with those metal alligator clips, um, those little metal things, throw those away. Mm-hmm. Uh, those sharp points will go through the ACE wrap, what they're supposed to do, and it will hold in place. But the problem with me, you can scratch your patient's skin underneath or put little ulcer holes, and then you put in an avenue for infection. And if you do have that patient who's a diabetic or has that peripheral vascular disease and you're a poor wound healer, it's just going to prolong your process. So throw those out, 
and just use tape or you know, Velcro, something like that to keep those ACE wraps in place. Do not use those in clips. 100% agree. Just get a nice, good, strong uh, silk tape or something that'll stay on. Um, yeah. Use that instead. I throw those away every time. Yep. The first thing I do. <laughs> Are there any sorts of treatments from your perspective that you like to do for your patients that are complaining of restriction, whether residual or their neuropathic or your activities? The first step is, as we talked about already, is the multidisciplinary approach. Attempt if you could do something non-surgical. So if you if you have the whole team there, you have a prosthetist, make sure that the prosthetic is fitting nicely. Um, if you have the if it's a swelling issue or something along those lines, you know, make sure that's all dealt with. What, once we've kind of ruled all that out and you've figured out, okay, there's, there's something that we need to change about the stump, then you need to figure out exactly what the problem is with the stump. Everybody usually needs an x-ray uh, so you can see if there's heterotopic ossification, which is abnormal growth of the, of the bone, which can happen at any fracture site, but also can happen at a, at a, a residual limb when there is a free end of a bone there. If that's the case, that has to be dealt with, usually in combination with the orthopedic surgeon that can uh, debulk that. If there is inadequate soft tissue padding, a lot of times we'll need a plastic or reconstructive surgeon that can help provide additional padding. Or if there's nowhere to get, you know, there's no muscle nearby or the muscles have kind of atrophied. Unfortunately, sometimes you have to shorten the limb a little bit. And then if there is neuropathic pain, uh, which is something I'm passionate about and talk, talk a lot about is there's this treatment called target muscle innervation, uh, which is surgery and involves rerouting the nerves to, to treat neuropathic or phantom limb pains. When exactly did that target muscle reinnervation come about? Yeah. So it's a, it's an interesting story. It's been since the early 2010s or so. And, uh, there's a couple of people that have been pretty key in developing the technique, uh, Greg Damanian and in Valerio who were at Chicago and Walter Reed. Uh, later at Ohio State, started to develop the technique. It's an interesting story. So the first time it was done, and when the idea was devised, it was about creating more signals for myoelectric prostheses, specifically in a patient who had a four-corner amputation. The thing with myoelectrics is they have to pick up on signals from your body to figure out what the, the prosthetic should do, okay? And... When you have an amputation, for example, four corner amputation, which is at your shoulder, for those who don't know, there's all these nerves that were being used to move your fingers, move your elbow, move your wrist, all these things. And they are, they're just cut at the end and they give out this signal, but the signal's not very strong. It's a little bit weak and it's a little bit disorganized. And so the idea that these guys had was to take those nerves and then reroute them into motor nerves that you have on your body that are not really being used. So for this patient, who was the first patient, they used it, they hooked it into the pectoralis muscle and they took the different motor branches of the pectoralis muscle and hooked up these nerves into the different parts of the muscle. And so when the patient wanted to open his hand, he would think, okay, I wanna open my hand. And then that part of the muscle would twitch. And then we wanted to close his hand, a different part of the muscle would twitch. And the same thing with the wrist, the elbow, uh, shoulder, and, and so on. And so then the myoelectric, instead of just trying to 
pick up on these little kind of nerve signals, it's much easier to pick up on a muscle actually twitching. And with that, they were able to develop a myoelectric that this patient was able to use. And there's these great videos that are essentially public domain at this point. They've shown them at all the meetings and published them. And it worked great. It was awesome. The issue with myoelectrics, which I don't know if you've treated many patients who've gotten them, they're really hard to get. And they, they cost a lot of money. Even when people are using them, a lot of times they're using them in kind of a research setting. But then when they go about their daily lives at home, they're not really using it that often. And so as they started to do this technique more and more, even patients who, there were some patients who did not get bioelectrics and they were telling the surgeons like, hey, by the way, I have way less pain all the time and I no longer have any phantom limb pain. And so that was interesting. And so then they started to try to figure out why that is for one and two started doing it on more and more patients just for the reason of pain after they realized that it really works and they you know looked at the histology and stuff that's a long answer to your question but surgery has been developed for over 10 years now relatively new in the history of limb loss and surgery limb salvage also for that matter but uh, new yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's so it's interesting because amputations have been going on for a while for a very long time you know 100 years and amputations around the time that surgery was being developed, which is like early 1900s or so, had to be done very quickly because blood loss was a big deal. There's a lot of big vessels that you're doing and anesthesia was not quite the same as it is now. And so not quite. It's, it's very barbaric when you think about it. And then slowly, if you, you know, we got better with anesthesia and now people have general anesthesia, which is great. And amputations haven't, hadn't progressed really as a surgical technique for a long time, for a very long time. You know, people were still trying to get it, you know, kind of do it quickly and it's not to say that people rush through it, but there wasn't a whole lot to it. People were amputating the limb. There's some developments that have happened around making the incision not right on the stump. And so there's less issues, less issues with the prosthetic causing the, the stump to break down and good padding and things of the sort. But in large part, not a whole lot had changed up until probably the past 15, 20 years and a lot, it coincides a lot with this, this nerve technique developing. And so it is relatively new. That said, I would say it's, we've, it's been a long time coming to, right. to get better for us to get better as doctors at doing limb amputation. So from that perspective, I, you know, it is new, but I think it's something that needed to happen. It's also one of the, now in the past three years, really, it's become probably one of the best studied procedures out there. Uh, in 2019, there's a paper from this group, a paper out of Ohio State, and uh, a third paper as well that all came out and showed pretty definitively that this procedure works. They've been collecting data for years and years, and it absolutely works. It lowers pain scores, decreases narcotic use. Uh, as you know, a lot of patients are on narcotics or neuroleptic pain medications like gabapentin and Zyrica, and half the patients will be completely off narcotic pain medicine after going this procedure. It's pretty remarkable. Like I was going to say, that, that's phenomenal. That's, you know, usually one of our big uh, battles is where treating our patients is, is that delicate balance of maintaining good pain management so they can function, so they can do the therapy, so they can get back to their lifestyle, but also trying to get them off of some of those heavy pain pillars because there's obviously other risks involved with long-term narcotic use. Right. And it's become a complete epidemic. And it's, you know, it's 
very public now. There's that movie or that show Dope Sick, which I haven't seen, but I, people talk to me a lot about. I should really check it out. But the, it is a big deal. And getting people off of narcotic pain medicine is a, is a big deal. So if you've had an amputation, it's not abnormal for you to be on narcotic pain medicine. I think many, many uh, residual limb patients are. But then you have TMR, half of the patients will be completely off of it. And then the remaining patients will cut their narcotic use down significantly. So from that perspective, that's huge. Absolutely. Definitely. What are the risks for the patient to um, undergo TMR? Are there any yeah, unique side effects or risks associated with that surgery? Yeah, it's not a whole lot. I mean, there it is going, you do have to go to surgery. So we, like we talked about, that means you'll have about six to eight weeks away from your prosthetic uh, when you're recovering to let all the wounds heal and your swelling go down, things like that. There's another surgery, so you have the normal risks of surgery, especially for patients that are in vascular issues or kidney disease or anything like that. So you always have to take that into account. It does have to be done under general anesthesia. It's not something you can do under uh, local or kind of twilight anesthesia. But other than that, not, not a whole lot. I mean, it's, it's the same as you would if you were having your primary amputation, which is not a particularly risky procedure, but um, it is surgery. So I don't want to, to minimize it from that perspective. Are there any differences in the surgery uh, if we're talking about upper body versus lower body procedures? You know, obviously the myoelectric prosthetics, they're a little, they're definitely more of an upper body prosthetic versus our a lower extremity prosthetic, but is there any difference then in the surgery, in the surgical technique that has to happen? Between upper body and lower body, you know, the concept is the same. You're just <laughs> taking these live wire nerves and then rerouting them into muscles that are no longer being used. So, you know, in your below knee amputees, amputee surgeries, it is, you know, you're rerouting them into the gastroc, which normally moves your ankle or your anterior tibial uh, muscle, which is normally also moving your, moving your ankle around. That's where you're doing it there. Whereas in the upper arm, like if you're doing a below the elbow, you're rerouting them into the muscles that move your wrist and your fingers. But the, the concept of surgery is very similar. The one thing is if the patient, if you think there's a chance that the patient is going to get a myoelectric, which is in fairly specific situations, but depends on a lot of different things, then there is more emphasis on putting the signals closer to the skin uh, and making sure there's padding over the bone, but not so much padding over the muscle so that the myoelectric is able to pick up on the muscle twitching. When you're doing it for pain, it, it, you know, anytime you put two nerves together or you cut a nerve, there's going to be an aroma there. It's just not all of them are symptomatic. One of the things that helps them not be symptomatic is when they're deep within your body and not close to the skin. And so there is some emphasis on uh, putting the nerve kind of deeper into your limb when you're doing it specifically for pain control. So that, that's one thing I would say. Have you had any experience or do you know of anything where patients had this procedure and they've had to go back and have it done a second time? Or generally speaking, once you have this done, you're pretty much, I don't want to say good, but you're in, in a good position. Yeah, it does happen. It's not super common, but it absolutely does happen. There are times when you do, you know, you do surgery and patients will still have phantom limb pains or still have residual limb pains. And in those cases, there's a couple of things that could be going on. Number one, early on when people were getting this, 
there was a lot of thought that you could identify which nerve it was. So if you had a blow knee and the pain was generally on the small toe side, it is usually the, you know, one of the nerves called the perineal nerve or common perineal or superficial perineal nerves. And so people would just treat that nerve. But then the patients would say, well, now this other side of my leg is hurting. It, it, you know, the surgery didn't do anything. And it, what happens is just when you treat one area of pain or one nerve, the other nerves seem to get worse. We're not really sure why that is, or maybe you're just uncovering it. It's like a distracting pain or distracting injury. Like, you know, if your kid cuts their finger or something, and then you pinch their other side of their arm, then the first thing doesn't hurt anymore. It's the same kind of right. thing we think. Yeah. Um, and so now people will, most people will just treat all the nerves at the same time. If you're, if you're going into surgery and you're already opening it and you're already going through all the recovery, they'll treat all the nerves. And so that, um, that's one thing to think about. People have had TMR or RPNI, which is a kind of similar procedure um, early on, and they're still having pain. That's one thing to think about. Mm-hmm. Other times, we're not really sure why, but there are certain patients who just are very aggressive neuroma formers. And so they will form neuroma or they'll continue to have pain after having a procedure. In those cases, you can go back and try to do the same thing again, but you know, it may be that they're just more aggressive formers. And so there might be something else going on. And so something else that people have tried, uh, and we've tried a couple of times is to do something called peripheral nerve stimulation. Uh, it's similar to these spinal cord stimulators that people get for chronic back pain. Um, but you'll put it at, you'll put the stimulator at the site of the nerve that is causing the most pain or causing okay. most of the issue. And it, there's like a remote control that the patients will have and they can adjust how much stimulation the nerve is getting. And that low level stimulation seems to make the pain uh, better. I will, I should say when it, you know, you, whenever you get any of these surgeries or whether you get peripheral nerve stimulator or any of these things, if you're at a eight or nine out of 10 pain, a lot of times we can expect the pain to get better. So you'll get to three or four, maybe a two, but you're, it's very rare the patient that goes to have zero pain at all after surgery. So people shouldn't expect to be in zero pain whatsoever after they, after they get this done. Right. Well, it, we tell that to our, our back pain patients also, if they're one of those patients that have had back pain for years and they're getting down into their legs, you know, if your pain intensifies, but it's only in your back, that means we're doing something right with therapy. It's not going to magically go away in a few treatments. Uh, there's a, there's a progression to the recovery process. Yes, absolutely. There's a progression and something. There's a lot we don't understand about pain. It's an interesting thing to talk about, but I think people that have been in pain for a long time, have been in pain for 20, 30 years, there's, it's very hard to break that. Um, mm-hmm. Just because you solve, even if you solve the kind of organic, visible thing that is going on uh, through therapy or surgery or what have you, um, there's there's almost something like ingrained. And it's, it's very hard to deal with. And I, I don't know what the answer is, but I do think it, it creates this emphasis on the multidisciplinary care, which we keep going back to, but, um, you know, having your pain medicine doc, sometimes even a psychiatrist and every, you know, the whole team there to treat you is, is the best. If you have a situation like that, it's the best place to be. Absolutely. hundred percent. I agree. Is there a, a patient or a situation, I guess I should say that you would not recommend this surgery for? Yeah, I think the, the times. You know, if, if surgery is very risky for you, uh, and, you, and there's risk to having a 
heart attack or something while you're under general anesthesia, I would certainly stay away from it. Um, if patients have an ill-defined reason for their pain, you can't really figure out what it is and it, everything kind of looks okay and it doesn't seem like it's a nerve issue, then it, it's what the surgery is less likely to help you, I should say. Um, people should know that going in. Uh, I think those are probably the two biggest things. I think uh, it's good, good to make sure you have a good understanding of what is happening and what your expectation should be for after surgery before having it. So, um, you know, I, I would always try to meet your surgeon at least twice uh, and talk about it with as many people as you can, talk about with physical therapists, make sure your prosthetist is set up um, and understands what's going on and um, before undergoing it too. Uh, so, you know, you just got to have all your ducks in a row uh, before, before undergoing surgery, I would say. And if you don't, then I would, I would just wait. Yeah, I think being an informed patient is, is the best way to go. Having these discussions with everyone on your team, you know, you don't want to, um, you know, disappear on your prosthetist for six weeks and then all of a sudden drop the bomb on him or her that you went off and had surgery. Um, because there yeah. may be something that they have to address with the prosthetic and make sure that it's going to fit right after. Um, so and then, I, oh, I should say there, there's two patients that I would say that probably wouldn't work for at all. And it's people that have root avulsion injuries. So if people have had traction injuries to their upper extremities uh, and their nerves are damaged all the way kind of near their spine, we call it the, the root of the brachial plexus. Okay. Um, surgery usually doesn't work well for that because we don't have a the nerves are not necessarily long enough for us to be able to do the TMR for. Um, and then there are people that have uh, diabetes or they have certain chemotherapies uh, that have caused nerve, that cause nerve pain. Um, uh, and in those situations where you're just having kind of diabetic nerve pain or neuropathy from chemotherapy, the surgery doesn't necessarily work for that either. Okay. That's good to know. Cause we do get, um, I know in my practice, we do get patients that have, been going through chemo or uh, do you notice that with radiation as well or is it really just the chemo no yeah with radiation it can happen too it and with chemo also. there's there's just certain chemos that it happens with it's not all you know not all chemo but it does okay. happen with radiation as well okay um but yeah we do come up on patients that have those situations so in terms of talking about different treatment options for them it's definitely good to know we had spoken a little bit about our chronic pain situations and, and how, you know, they've been in pain for so long, it's not just good way. Um, but aside from the, the physical manifestations of pain, what have you seen in your practice as far as psychological? We have a psychologist and psychiatrist on staff where I am, uh, so we can address those issues pretty uh, forthcoming. You know, we put in those consults day one, day two, mission for them. But um, how does that impact what you're trying to do? Yeah, it's huge. It's it's a, definitely a big deal. Um, there's a, a lot of kind of feedback mechanisms, and it, it's it's everything. I mean, I think for the chronic pain, it is uh, it is a very important to help people kind of understand it and give people a way to react to it when you're having a attack of pain or when it's really bad. I think that is really important. Um, and it's not to say that the pain is all in your head. I think that is like one thing that. You know, if you try to bring up like, oh, I want you to see a psychiatrist, people think you don't believe them. And that is definitely not the case at all. We know you're in pain. We know there's an organic reason. 
Um, but it just kind of helps give people strategies for how to think about it. Um, but also if people, especially trauma patients, but actually everybody, you know, trauma patients, peripheral vascular disease patients and cancer patients getting a psychiatrist involved or very early, but even before the final amputation, I think is huge uh, and really helps people. And it's a lot to go through and a lot to think about. So throughout the whole, through all of it, I think it's it's huge, impacts a lot of what I do. Yeah, what we do is, is we I tell the patients that we have a psychologist on staff, she's going to come see you. We put in a consult for everybody who's gone through surgery like yours, because there is a large impact to you terms of going through surgery just alone just alone surgery but in terms of setting yourself up for that long-term recovery and success stay away from you know saying you know the it's in your head i want them to open up and it, usually what happens is is you know they talk to the psychologist the first time they throw her out of the room and then when she goes back for the second <laughs> time all of a sudden it's like the floodgates opened because okay. as they were going through everything when they met with the other folks having gone through their limb loss surgery that they're already rebuilding. Uh, maybe they met with the peer mentor and started talking about some other things that have come up. And then all of a sudden they realized that there's a big, big value to meeting with and talking with the psychologist and psychiatrist. Yeah, it's, it's a big thing. And, and you know, another thing that I found that has helped patients mentally kind of deal with everything and wrap their head around stuff is to meet with a prosthetist and meet the team before they even have their amputation. If it's, if it, and that you can't always do that, I understand, especially in trauma situations, but it, in patients that have cancer or peripheral vascular disease, and they kind of have, we've gotten to the point where we think that's in their future. If they can meet the team and meet prosthetist and physical therapist and start, and maybe even a patient that's had uh, an amputation before they get theirs, I've, I've seen that to be a huge benefit for patients. Yeah, I agree. Uh, before I worked where I am currently, I did work in the acute care hospitals and, and we were working a lot with surgeons and trying to set patients up to meet with those people beforehand. When it was sort of, okay, we've done X, Y, and Z, we've done one, two, and three, and now th this is where we are. This is inevitable point. And to get those different team members in place beforehand was such a benefit, especially when you sat there and you say to a patient, you know, did, did the prosthetist meet with you? And they'd say no. And then you'd find the business cards on their nightstand there. And be like, mm -hmm. no, you did. You, you met with the kid, you met with Mike, and they were here. And they got, I have no idea. Because thanks to narcotics, thanks to anesthesia, thanks to the antibiotics they were on and everything else that they were going through they weren't even processing what was happening so that preemptive move uh is definitely a benefit yeah yeah i think it's i think it's a big deal um and yeah even if people don't consciously register it i think just having a conversation helps them think about it and it it just helps it everybody be a little more forward thinking and i, I know it's it's a huge thing to go through i can't even imagine very difficult process to go through but the more kind of forward thinking people can be and the more we can help people to be a little more forward thinking and think all right what's the next step what's my future going to be like how am i going to thrive in in life after this surgery i think that really helps people and uh, meeting it meeting the team and seeing how supportive everybody is and seeing other people that have gone through it and lived great and productive lives afterward 
I think it's huge. Absolutely. And, and I think that, um, that peer mentor, having someone who's been through it before is even bigger than all the other people that they meet up the team because you know, you, me, we can tell you, you know, everything that they're going to go through from a medical, from a surgical, from a therapy point of view, but to have that individual who can sit there and go, no, really, this is what you're going to go through after your surgery. This is how we need to you know, shape your limb. This is what's going to happen when they fit you for your prosthetic. This is what you're going to go through when you start learning how to drive again have to figure out how to get your, your suit on so you can go to work. Uh, having that peer mentor and having somebody who's literally been through the process is such a huge advantage. Yeah, it's great. And I mean, uh, support groups are important. Like the one, you know, the one you're involved with, I yep. think those are very helpful. Um, and books like the gentleman you had on this podcast, just a, a few, I think it was a couple of months ago now, but those, you know, those are great great things to get involved with, uh, for patients. And I think it really helps them mentally with the whole thing. Uh, and believe it or not, when you're in a more mentally stable place and seen other people going through it, you will, they'll get ideas from each other. And, uh, they're things like they're, if they're having pain in their limb, they'll get an idea from somebody else that maybe they wouldn't have heard, or maybe they'd hear it from one of the providers, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't sink in as much as when you hear it from a peer. Yeah. Definitely. I always love when I sit there at a support group and I explain something, whatever it is. And then you'll hear one of the group members go, yeah, my therapist told me that too. And uh, that's crap. Let me tell you what's really <laughs> why I'm like, <laughs> like well, it's, good. Right. it's good when people, it's good when people feel comfortable enough to say like, Hey, you're maybe you don't know the whole picture. You know, and that's how we learn. That's how we learn. So it's, it's that's good. How we, I love absolutely. Absolutely. Like I said, they've been there. They, they tried what I was talking about and it, it didn't work and, and that's okay, actually. Um, and that's what I think the, the benefit and the advantage of the peer mentors of the support groups and podcasts and platforms like this is, you know, we're going to get different perspectives out there. We're going to get different ideas and, and different conversations going. I think that's at the end of the day, how our patients and our clinicians learn to do things better. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. And sometimes from, from a clinician perspective, it's just, I think we are so used to talking to other providers a lot. And when we go through training, we speak in a certain language that doesn't necessarily resonate with people. And yep. so sometimes when, you know, patients will say like, oh, you never told me that, or like, maybe you told me that, but it didn't really make sense. I think that is like, I think very helpful, especially when they can, you know, after the fact, I can change the way I speak or they can give suggestions on how to, I can explain it better. Um, I think that's great. Yeah. And, you know, the patients, they go into information overload, you know, yeah. they, you know, yeah. if, if this was traumatic and, and things happen very rapidly, then they weren't even prepared. But even when they are prepared for it, then they sort of knew that this is what was going to happen. I don't think they fully grasped the full breadth of what was going to be uh, transitioning and what was going to be happening. So when it does, you know, you, you give them all the information and all the education in the world, but they just don't process it because it is a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. I mean, it's, it's funny. We talked about how it's, it's hard to explain to somebody 
everything that's going to go on when they get like a carpal tunnel release or some kind of, you know, smaller procedure. This is a life-changing experience. And so there's, I mean, it's nearly impossible for anyone to go into it knowing exactly what's going to happen. Um, I think we try to make that as, as good as possible and we try to smooth their transition. But it's like you said, it's just information overload and it's going to be a lot changing all at once. So anything we can do to make that a little bit smoother, I think is good. Absolutely. I'm a big proponent of, of handouts. I mean, I give all of my patients a, a loose leaf binder and mm. we just, you know, I give them a few things to kind of get them started. We get them handouts on, you know, the, the stages that they're going to go through in terms of the, the surgical recovery, how to manage the pain and give them some support group information, their mentor information, and then bit by bit, keep giving them more. And by the time they're done with the program, they end up with a, it's an inch and a half thick binder and it's full. I tried once giving someone everything and say, you know, we'll go through it bit by bit. And that particular person decided to try to read everything in a weekend. And <laughs> I mean, they were, yeah, they just, it, it did go a lot. <laughs> That's impressive. <laughs> read all that in a I'm like, good. what were you, I'm like, That's a lot. And they went, yeah, well, you know, I had some downtime and this, that, and the other thing. <laughs> Well, all right. Well, that's good. No, it's, it, yeah, there's a study that was done a while ago is when it was specifically for doctors, but when you talk to somebody, like the second they were, went out of the room, they gave them a quiz to see like how much of what they remembered from what the right. doctor was telling them. And it was like less than 40%. And it, it you know, wasn't about amputations. It was about just something or the other. I don't know what it was about specifically, maybe cholesterol or something. But the, the point is, Having a handout is very important just because people aren't going to remember most of what you say, right. no matter what. And it, it it's very hard for any kind of uh, appointment you're having with a provider just because it's a lot of information and it's complicated and the language is confusing. So it's great that you, you have handouts to give out to people. It's very important. Yeah. And I think the other thing those handouts is making sure that everything is in lay terminology uh, because mm -hmm. we all have that bad habit of, you know, we just talk medicine. That's what we do. So uh -huh. if you get those handouts and it's got the, uh, the medical terminology all over it, most people are going to shut that right off. They don't absorb that information. Right. Absolutely. As we're kind of winding down here, what would your take-home message be, or what's the one thing in particular you really want, whether it's patients or clinicians, uh, you want them to take away from this uh, podcast? Yeah, I, th I think it's a great that you're doing it. I think, you know, one thing that patients should understand is if they're having pain in their limb, it, it is possible to have it treated. You shouldn't just be living in pain all the time, uh, especially if you haven't talked to your team about it. Um, there's a lot of times something that can be done, whether, and it may not always be surgery, it may be just a bit of your prosthetic or so the shape of your limb or a way you need to change things. And I even just saw somebody last week who was having pain in her limb um, and she just had a, like, literally she just had a cyst on the, right on the front of her stump that was causing her terrible pain. And when she walked in a certain way with her prosthetic, the prosthetic's just pushing up against that cyst, causing her a lot of pain. And so... Um, don't live in pain. Uh, it's normal if you're on pain medication, neuroleptics and narcotics, but you know, take a closer look at it. Make sure you talk to your team. 
um, and we'll do our best to try to treat you and make your life better, use your prosthetic more, reduce the amount of narcotics you're on. Um, that's what, that's what we want to do. Absolutely. A great take home message for everybody. Well, I want to take a moment now and give an extra thank you to Dr. Agrawal. This was a pleasure this morning. We covered a lot of good topics, a lot of information. Um, and this was a fun time also. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for putting all this together. Um, you're doing a lot of great work out there and I'm happy to be a part of it. Uh, excellent. Thank you so much. My name is Mike. I am the host for your Limitless put out from the Academy for Amputation and Limb Difference Physical Therapy. I hope those of you that have listened to our podcast before, I hope to enjoy this episode discussing neuropathic pain, phantom pain, and some treatment options out there for you. For those of you that are new, welcome aboard. I hope you stay tuned for future episodes. Thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to Limitless. If you're interested in learning more about the Academy of Amputation and Limb Difference Physical Therapy, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and at our website, www.amputationrehab.org. I hope you enjoyed this talk today, and stay tuned for more exciting guests and information coming to you soon.